There oh you my go. gosh, thank you, Taylor. A round of applause for Taylor. Taylor. Round of applause. I have to say, first of all, my sobriety date is June 25th, 2015. Uh, and thank you, Tom, for asking me to lead this meeting. I, I love it and I appreciate it. And it truly is an honor to participate in my recovery. And there's a lot of friends here. I see a lot of familiar faces. And um, again, it's Ellis, right? Ellis, how many days do you have sober now? And congratulations, huge. And, and for me, it's like the, the, the 30 days in a year were like the biggest thing for me. And I congratulate you. And I want to say too that being able to get up here and share and read, like this fucking podium, like this thing right here, I had nightmares about this stuff in my first 30 days. Like the people calling me to identify and take chips, like this is the, your example of courage. And I really appreciate you doing that. And, and for me, um, first of all, I have to say thank you so much, Taylor, for, for being able to lead this meeting. You have such a great way to articulate your emotions and feelings. And I can say like, I am truly honored to, to have you as a partner and my life is so different, so crazy different than it was when I first came in here on June 25th, 2015. And that's my sobriety date. And that is the first time I ever entered a treatment on my own volition. Now I did use drugs and alcohol for a long time and it was working, uh, but, but for me, um, it happened like this. Um, there was a huge incident with the police, as many of you guys have had encounters with the police. And um, I'd been caught in Aurora, Colorado. Um, I'd been selling narcotics, cocaine and heroin to a, a woman. And she got pulled over and I had five balloons of heroin in my mouth. So one of them was open and the other five were tucked in my crotch, right? Because that's where we keep stuff, right? That's a little pocket when we're, when we're walking around with drugs. So I swallow the five balloons and one's in my belly that's open and they take me to Aurora County jail and they don't find my balloons in the initial search, right? They don't find the ones in my crotch in the initial search. But as soon as I get in there, they find the other ones. And I can remember that day. I remember the corrections officer literally pulling these balloons from my crotch and very embarrassing, right? And he's, and he's saying one felony, two felonies, three felonies, four felonies, and five felonies. And I could, I could feel my life, you know, getting deeper and lower and lower and lower with each drop of those, those balloons. And at the time I had already been, um, I'd been on probation for nine and a half years at that time. So I had a two week break prior to that incident. And, and I always want to remember this stuff because I always share this because it's so important to me because um, after that heroin had worn off inside my body, um, I, I had become very sick. And as, as you guys know, who have taken other drugs besides alcohol, um, I was taking a lot of benzodiazepines, a lot of Xanax. And uh, on top of the heroin, I started having seizures. And I remember waking up in that jail cell and any of you guys have, have ever detoxed in jail, I mean, it's the most horrific thing because you know you're not getting shit, you know, until you might come to and meet somebody. And, and for me, at that point, when I woke up, I remember laying on the ground and I remember feeling my clothing in that jumpsuit, that beautiful orange jumpsuit. And it was totally drenched in, in urine in my own feces. 
and I was paralyzed. I was stuck to the floor because I couldn't get up on my own volition. I literally lost the ability to move. And I remember seeing about seven men around me that were standing around me in a circle. And I remember the look on their face and look of panic of men in jail who were concerned about my health, my well-being. And, and it dawned on me that I still had these other balloons in my belly, that if I got those balloons outside of me, that I could get into that balloon and I could take heroin again and I would be well. And I remember trying to get over on my hands and knees and crawl to that toilet, that, that silver toilet with no toilet seat, that little sink above it. And I, all I want to do is to empty out my insides, to look through my own shit, you know, and like literally having no power to do that. And like, that's where my alcoholism takes me. I'm incapable of putting drugs in my body from a toilet in jail, you know, and that obsession of the mind. Oh, good Lord, I had no idea about that stuff. Like until I came to AA and I came to treatment, I had no idea about that. Like in this book, I found myself, but it took a long time in order to get there. My step one, this is my step one, right? Because I grew up with family members that were alcoholics. And a lot of you have alcoholic family members. Anybody else in here have family members or alcoholics? Anybody? Yes. And it's Doug, right? With 90 days, congratulations, 90 days. Five months. five months. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Round of applause. That's awesome. And, and, uh, you know, like it was normal for me. It was normal for me. I grew up in San Pedro, Los Angeles. And was it Kate? What's your name again? Kate. 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 Kate is from San Pedro. And we spoke outside. And I grew up, uh, uh, you know, in the late 80s. And crack was just, you know, it was it was a thing. It was a thing back then. And so my cousin sold crack. They sold it out of the house. My grandma, my Spanish grandma, who's Costa Rican, took care of me. So she had no idea what was going on. So my cousins were about seven years older than me and my brother. They're watching us, right? But they're getting little bags out of their socks like this, you know, and they're giving me these little bags and they're giving them to me to run out to the streets, right? Give it to cars. And at the time, like, I didn't know exactly what they were doing, right? Like, I didn't know that they were drugs, but I knew it was bad. You know, I knew seeing a syringe was bad. I knew smelling things and people acting weird was bad. But the thing was, is that they would get me high before they babysat me. They would sit me in front of a TV, you know, and it was around me all the time. And although my parents were wonderful parents, they worked all the time and they couldn't see me all the time and they couldn't protect me. And God bless my mother's heart. She couldn't protect us when my cousin started abusing us. And my older brother, Aaron, and I started to become abused by my cousins and not just, you know, physical abuse because they would make us fight. They'd make us fight other people, but they also started sexually abusing us. And at that time, uh, when teachers found out, my parents got very afraid of what was going to happen to us. And they moved us all the way from San Pedro, Los Angeles to Littleton, Colorado. And Littleton, Colorado is very much different from, from San Pedro. Anybody from Colorado or know Colorado? Yeah, so where, where, what's your name again? And how many days do you have sober? Oh, yeah, right on, congratulations. So it's totally different, right? It's a totally different atmosphere. And again, little hurt Chad, little hurt Chad that's being abused and, and taken away from the rest of his family. 
he has a bone to pick. And like, I was a little bully. I was a little bully, but I played soccer and I was good at it. And when I could focus on things, I could excel. And I was in uh, competitive, uh, you know, teams playing soccer. Um, I eventually trained for the Olympics. I wasn't able to make the Olympic team, but I was very good at what I did, right? And that was my alcoholism. I, I realized like when I focus in on something, I can achieve and I can do it very well. But when I put that energy into doing drugs, when I met older kids that I, I envied, um, when I met women, I met girls, and I wanted to hang out with them, and I would pretend to smoke cigarettes and enjoy it. I don't know if you guys remember smoking a cigarette for the first time, but fuck, they tasted like shit, you know? <laughs> like, and I remember smoking them and, and, like, hanging out with the girls, and it was before class in middle school, and I did it anyways because I wanted to connect. And like before I did drugs because it relieved my brain, I did it because I wanted to fit in. Like, that's the reason why I did it, you know? And when I started smoking weed and I started drinking, I was hanging out with the older kids because I wanted to connect. And even though I didn't really like it at first, I wanted to connect and that, that superseded everything. Now what started to happen, I started to smoke weed and I started to take things called Adderall and Ritalin. Anybody an ADD child in here? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. It's very common, apparently, in Colorado. So, so when I started having my best friend's brother, he started asking me to bring pills to school. And again, that was right when I got into to middle school. So how old are you, like 11 years old or something? You're young, right? 11 years old, something like a tiny, you're just a little kid. And I remember him asking me to bring the pills to school. And I remember uh, breaking them up, like very classy. Uh, on the toilet roll, you know, in the bathroom, because that's what we do. And, um, and I remember feeling that rush in that focus. And I remember getting that high at that age and wanting to chase that. And again, it wasn't like I was doing these things every single day, but like once that switch was turned on in me, like I wanted to keep going with it. And later on, again, went from, uh, from Ritalin and Adderall to methamphetamines. And it wasn't hard for me to get into cocaine. And like, that was my jam. And again, mind you, alcohol was always a part of my life. Like I would come home from middle school, like a long, hard day's work at middle school, right? Ugh. Having to relax, and I would emulate, whoa, emulate my dad. My dad would come home from work and he would pour himself some, um, some rum, rum and coke, right? And so what would I do? And I was so small, I'd have to jump up on the counter and right above the stove and go in the cabinet. And I'd pour myself some rum and I would go upstairs and I'd do homework. And like, I wanted to be my dad, you know? I didn't, I didn't even like the way it tastes. And that feeling of, of being relaxed, you know, of comfortability, like that started to become something that I kept the chase. I kept chasing and chasing and chasing, but you throw cocaine in there and it's, it's a game over for me, you know, because cocaine is one thing once my mind starts going like it, it won't stop that obsession to use and drink. And by that time, I start finding other people that are doing the same thing as me. And bless my, my best friend's heart. His name is Dan Pierce. And Dan Pierce came from a very abusive home, just like me. So we were like little magnets. We were like little terrors that, that met. And we did the same shit. We started to break into houses together. We started to sell drugs. So Again, I'm in school, I'm doing well academically, I'm playing soccer, but now I'm starting to hang out with kids that are getting in some serious trouble. So Dan and I become very close together and Dan gets kicked out of school because he goes, he goes far right, but I'm still doing well, right? 
I'm doing well. And I take all of those actions into to high school. I'm selling cocaine in high school. I'm selling weed in high school and alcohol is my jam. People come to my house, my house. I'm like, that, I, that, that's my identity on the weekends. Like everybody came and party at my place. They got my dog high with me. Bless her heart, Brandy. She smoked lots of weed. And, and like, I was, I, I felt like I was in, right? And again, it was so manageable. There was nothing stopping me. So, so these behaviors, without having to deal with any major consequences, I had taken to college and I went to the University of Colorado Boulder and it was a party school. And I fucking loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And when I got there, I had arrived. I had arrived and I, I entered the dorms at Farron Hall and um, I moved right next door to the two gentlemen from Connecticut, New York. And I know there's a lot of East Coasters out here. Anybody from the East Coast? I met somebody from East Coast. Thank you. Thank you. Trouble. Trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, these two guys were what they call trust fund kids. They're trust fund kids. They had a lot of money. It was a lot of their parents' money. But they had this idea of selling narcotics. And it was like the perfect storm because of the people I knew in Colorado at that time. It was very serious. And um, I went hand in hand with them. And, and we started buying narcotics and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. But, but myself, right? Like I was able to put this mask up and they talk about dualism in, in AA and they talk about wearing a mask and God, I love to wear that mask. I love to do shady ass shit, right? To be fucking sketchy and, and driving around with fucking eight balls and doing drug deals and, and rolling up next to like a minivan with family and, and just looking at that fucking father and be like you were such a sucker like I just made more money than you and, and and then you could make in a month right and I thought that person was the person that was failing in life and so when I met these people like my ego and pride just started to just shoot out of the roof but also I started to do things that I love to do like I was able to help people out I was able to work for the department of justice and I was, a young, I was the youngest person to be hired by the Department of Justice in Boulder, Colorado, because I did a lot of good things at the time, right? I was doing volunteer work. I was working for a place called San Juan Learning Center, which was for low-income minority children. Like I did a lot of very good things, right? So I'm working for the Justice Department. And this is when like my, my, my drug and alcohol really starts to collide with the things that I want because I had this idea of becoming a lawyer like that was my thing because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to be somebody that make, could make a difference, right? Give a voice for the people that I felt were being, you know, taken advantage of in the world. So now this is what happened is I'm working for the Justice Department and I'm staying late, up very late at night, right? When you hear the birds chirping every night because you're up on cocaine all night and you're partying, but I had a very important date the next day and it was coming in to do first aid and CPR at the Justice Center. So I stayed up all night and I came in, I was doing lines of coke in the parking lot of the jail. And I walk into this room, much like this room. And it was a bunch of judges and lawyers and sheriffs, right? And I'm still a very young man. So I'm now having to give CPR to dolls on the ground next to judges and lawyers and sheriffs. And of course it took them just a moment to discover, you know, I was still intoxicated from the night before. So that was the first time that I lost a job specifically because of drugs and alcohol. 
But of course, I didn't want to change anything. Like when, when Taylor talks about, you know, trying to hide from who we are and, and do different things because of what we want in life. Like I didn't want to change anything. So what I do, I decide to work at music. And for me, like it was again, bolstering my ego. And um, some of the men I was working with, those same men that I met in the dorms uh, committed a big robbery that I was involved in. And I gave them guns and um, I was very, very afraid of, of being indicted. So I left the country. I left the country and that's when I fled to Costa Rica. And that was the first time I left for about a year with my girlfriend, but I also brought my little brother, Jared. My little brother, Jared, is the most dear person I've ever had in my life. He followed me like a little puppy, right? Everything I did, Jared did. You know, when I got into drugs, of course he did. When I was doing well academically, so did he. And my brother was so smart, so smart. He was uh, trained to become a doctor. He was going about to go to school in Grenada for medical school. And my, uh, my alcoholism took me to a place where when I was in Costa Rica, again, the cocaine was cheaper, prostitution's legal, and the girlfriend I'm with wants nothing to do with me because I'm staying up all late, right? I'm meeting people that I shouldn't be meeting. And so what happens, she breaks up with me after being there for about a year. And that's in 2005. So what happens, I don't get indicted. I go back to Colorado and I decide to do something. It's called another geographical because I don't wanna change who I am. I don't wanna change anything like stopping drugs. I don't wanna stop anything like uh, stopping my drinking. What I do is I leave to Mississippi and New Orleans to help out Hurricane Katrina. Does everyone remember Hurricane Katrina? Yeah, it was extremely bad and I wanted to help out. So what happens, I go down to help out Hurricane Katrina and I'm living with a bunch of men and we're traveling around from all over the state. And in that time, uh, I'm with four other people and we leave a house that we're blue tarping and we're patching up the roof and trying to prevent it from, from taking on more rain. And when we leave the construction site, um, we get hit by a semi truck. So I get hit by a semi truck and I shoot out of this truck about 20 feet and um, I'm in a coma. I'm in a coma and I'm there for about uh, a week and a half in a little place called Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It's a very small, well, it was a small town, but um, I was in a coma and I wasn't looking very good. I was looking like I was gonna die. So my family came down, my friends came down, that ex-girlfriend came down and they were saying goodbye to me. And what happens, something very miraculous happens. I, I get well, I get better and I come out of that coma. But something more important for me as a drug addict is that uh, once I leave Mississippi, and um, I, I, I was recovering from breaking every single rib in my sternum, in my ankle and my wrist. Once I healed from that, I went back to Colorado and I met this very dirty doctor and his name was Dr. Kevin Clemmer. And he gave me anything I wanted. And that meant Oxycontin. And again, that meant Xanax. And later on it meant fentanyl. So now I have this money I get from this accident. And what do I do? I start growing marijuana and I start growing mushrooms. So I'm now I'm living off Colfax. It's a beautiful place, you know, Colfax. It's the hood, it's the hood, downtown Denver, right? So I'm growing mushrooms, I'm growing weed. I start seeing this girl, wonderful girl, very classy, working for a place called Shotgun Willies. What's Shotgun Willies? It's a strip club. She's totally right, it's a strip club, right? 
She's a very classy woman. So, so now I'm smoking crack all day. I'm doing heroin. I'm sitting there with an assault rifle and all I'm doing is looking at all the cameras in my house. So I swear to fucking God, someone's gonna kick the door open, right? Like I'm just paranoid. I'm seeing things, shadow people. But what happens is wonderful woman who I was seeing starts coming over my house and she's working as a criminal informant for the Denver Metro Task Force. It's the wrong person to be seeing, right? So what happens is she turns me in and uh, to make a long story short, um, the FBI takes over the case and they subpoena me for a grand jury trial to identify two members of the Sinaloa cartel. And they wanted me to give up these men to identify them. And luckily for me, the man who was in charge of my case, uh, detective by the name of Tony, had really done some illegal things in the FBI. Uh, they offered me a deferred judgment. I really escaped. I, I escaped with my ass in my life. And my deferred judgment was to be sober and on probation for two years. That's it. Two years. And they would drop all the charges, which is possession of 8.8 grams of cocaine and heroin. And that's all I had to do, right? I could still take pills, still take Xanax and Oxycontin, but I couldn't do it. I had that obsession to use and to drink. So I kept violating probation, kept violating probation. I'm on felony probation. And in that time, I started doing things like robberies. I started holding people up at gunpoint. And shit gets really bad for me. And on Father's Day, I, I robbed somebody of their uh, car and, and their money. Thank you very much. And um, that day, I get my best friend, Dan, the one I was getting in trouble with as a kid. I got him a hotel room because he was on the street. Right. And, and, and me wanting to be a good friend, I give him money, I give him these drugs. And the next day I wake up and I give him a call and somebody else answers his phone. And they tell me that Dan is uh, passed away. They say the person whose phone it is, is dead. And I can't tell you like how it feels to know that you're complicit in your best friend's death. And, and I can tell you that it's not enough to stop using. It's not enough. I can tell you when you have a room full of drugs and you're crying because you know you feel like you're the worst person on earth, but to have those things there and to be able to stop was an impossibility for me. And to have to give this eulogy in front of people, friends and loved ones, like it hurt me so bad. I, I, I wanted to kill myself. I didn't have the courage to do so. And for somebody like myself to go in front of family and pretend like nothing had happened, I held all of these things inside of me, held all of these things inside of me. And later on, <clears throat> about two years later, my little brother, Jared, was dating a girl named Tabitha. And he loved, their, he loved her and they were going to get married. And, and Tabitha's father was murdered. And because I was complicit with these other people, I became a suspect in his murder. And during the uh, funeral, during the funeral, I was caught by the detective smoking crack cocaine in the bathroom. And I can tell you that the amount of humiliation for my family to find out about what I was doing and the ability not to stop, um, I wanted to kill myself. And I can tell you that when I finally got caught with those drugs in Aurora, Colorado, and when my little brother, Jared Pinnell, was able to get me into a treatment center 
on June 25th, 2015. It was the best, most miraculous thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I was so desperate. When they talk about that incomprehensible demoralization, I didn't wanna be here anymore. And I did not think there was a way for me to stay sober. It wasn't a possibility. I was facing five years in prison for bringing those drugs into jail. And I just wanted to show the judge again that I was doing something in order to get off probation, not to go to prison, right? But this was it for me. I had no more outs. I couldn't run anymore. I, I had no more moves, I had no more ideas, and that was the grace of God for me. And for me to say something like that, I was completely unwilling years before to go to AA meetings. And when I heard them pray, and I heard them do things like uh, talk about God, I, I was so out the door. But for me at this time, I was just willing to take direction. And that was the second step for me, was the principle of hope. And I saw people who were in my treatment center. I saw a man by the name of Tyler who was taking his girlfriend out, buying her flowers, right? Buying her flowers. And I remember the look on her face. And I remember thinking, I want that. I want what this guy has. And I knew he had gone through everything that I had gone through, right? And I knew that his life was better. And it was that seed of hope that was placed in me. And I started to go to, to places like the Canyon Club, and the 7 a.m. Attitude, uh, attitude Adjustment meeting became my home group. And there's a lot of people right on, like Tom and Hugh. I mean, there's tons of people. Where is Tim? Tim, there's a lot of people here. Excuse me. There's a lot of people here that um, I, I know that became my family. There's a lot of people here. Marty. I mean, there's so many people here that became my family. And like, I learned how to love myself and I started to work with a sponsor. And the reason why I brought those things up is because I'd never before told people the things that I'd gone through. So when I was able to tell my sponsor the things I'd gone through with my, with my best friend, Dan, I had been about two and a half years since I'd been able to become sober and start making amends. And this is where the amends process meant such a huge transformation in my life because I was looking for his widow Tara for two and a half years trying to make amends to her, but I couldn't find her. Now, this is the same day that Dan died, which was Father's Day. Now, I get a phone call from Tara. Now, this is a woman who I've been trying to reach for two and a half years on Father's Day, and this is the way that God works in my life, is that she calls me unbeknownst to the day, and I tell her I have the courage, which I learn in AA, right? To, to own up to my bullshit in my past, just like Ellis did coming up here, right? And, and being able to share and read as we're taught certain principles. And I had to let her know exactly what I did that day, you know? And she got to tell me exactly how she felt about me, but I got to own what exactly I did. And I said, how do I make this better? How do I fix this? You know, and she invited me into her children's life, Isabella and Francisco, are now older and they're having problems with drugs, right? But I was able to go back to school while I was sober. I was able to become a drug and alcohol counselor. I was able to have purpose in my life. I was able to do things I thought was impossible when I first came here. And the reason why I mentioned the, the crack incident at a funeral is because my little brother, Jared Pennell, died on December 8, 2016. And he was the most important person to me in my life. And to be able to be there for him 
when he passed away in a little town called Nicoya, Costa Rica, to be present and to hold his hand was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But AA gave me the courage to be present, right? To be clear-minded, to walk my family through that incident and not be a fucking problem, but be part of the solution, right? To help my mom, to help my dad, to help my brother, right? And I did that with your help. I did that because the people around me loved me. They, they gave me money. They gave me support for my family that I never thought was possible. Like they showed up for me, right? And it was because I allowed myself to be of service to AA. And the thing is, is that when I told my little brother's ex-fiance, Tabitha, about what had happened at the funeral, because she didn't know, right? She didn't know. And I can tell you some things that she did think my older brother had done it, right? She thought my older brother was the one who was caught smoking crack in the bathroom. And um, I was able to talk to her and let her know exactly what I did. Because in my heart, I know that if I don't become clean and honest with the things I did in my life, that I know I'll drink again. And I can also say this, I was guided by people in my life that were sponsors that were able to, to, to get me through those steps, right? And to do them with tact and to learn how to go through life without using and drinking, but better yet, to be emotionally sober. And I've made mistakes along the way. I've made mistakes along the way, but there's a method for me to correct them. And I want to say thank you guys for allowing me to be present for my family. And I want to say this, that 10 months after my little brother Jared died, my father died as well. He died almost in identical hospital as my little brother of cirrhosis of the liver. And the last things I told my father were thank you and I love you. Thank you and I love you and thank you and I love you. And the thing I do every single morning when I wake up, when I first learned to pray, when I was in my treatment center, when I was too ashamed that everybody would see me, I would go in the bathroom and I would hit my knees and I would say thank you and I love you to a God that I had no idea about, but I was just willing. And when I was able to say those words to my father and for that chapter to end in my life, because you taught me how to be a good son and for him to see the man before him, before he died, was the greatest gift I could give him. And for that, I say thank you and I love you guys. That's all I got. Appreciate it.